0: this is Liz Tinkham and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, and welcome to Third Act. On today's show, I talk with Kef Kasson, the philanthropic environmentalist. Kef is a longtime venture capital partner and founder of several renewable energy companies well before it was fashionable to do so. When her twin daughters left for college, she decided that she needed to take the experience she had and apply it to doing good. She launched the ARC Innovators Program as part of Princeton Alumni Corps to match experienced executives like herself with nonprofits in need of the expertise. She also joined their board of directors and eventually became the executive director of the organization. But her work with those renewable energy companies led to a passion and commitment around climate change. So she found Rachel's Network, a women's network dedicated to the education and advocacy of environmental philanthropic giving. On today's episode, she talks about the work Rachel's Network is doing around climate change and issues of environmental justice, as well as how you can get involved. Hello, and welcome to Third Act. Today, my guest is Kef Kazin. And Kef, I'm thrilled to have you. Welcome to Third Act. Great to be here. So you are the first person I've had who is involved in climate change, as well as has found something else to do in their Third Act around their Alumni Corps. So very excited to to get into it. Thanks for joining today. Looking forward to the conversation. Princeton Alumni Corps. What is it? How'd you find it? And what's it doing today? Princeton Alumni Corps is actually a the over
1: 30 year old organization that impacts nonprofit communities around the country by primarily developing nonprofit leaders. There are actually three different programs. The flagship program places recent Princeton University graduates in one year paid. Fellowships and nonprofit organizations. Okay. Uh, but Alumni Corps does a lot more than just do that matching. Uh, we surround the fellows with leadership development, mentoring, and other support. Um, our Emerging Leaders Program, uh, which is open to um, anyone of any college degree or non-college degree is a professionally facilitated leadership program really for rising managers, young, relatively still young and early in their careers, um, and, um, while they're still working, um, and then Arc Innovators, uh, which is a program that I helped launch, matches experienced professionals with pro bono projects at nonprofits. Yeah, that's what I need. Okay. So it kind of, if you think about it, it's the whole arc of, um, of uh, uh, careers um, and talent development within nonprofit organizations. But yeah, happy to talk more about ARC Innovators as, as well as, as it, I think, relates to the work that you're doing.
0: Well, how did you find it?
1: I actually found it. It's a, it's a little bit of a funny story. I, I knew of the organization. I am a Princeton graduate myself. So I'd heard the organization was founded after I graduated, and I didn't really know about all the aspects of what the organization did. And so fast forward to when my kids were going off to college, I have twin daughters. And so I was really busy with my career as well as supporting and raising them. So when they went off to college, I knew I'd have some more time. And um, I was actually really interested in figuring out how I could give of my skills and experience, primarily from the business world. And this is while you were still working, correct? This was, I was working full-time. I was a I was a venture capitalist doing early stage investing and actually rolling up my sleeves and running companies. So I was quite busy, but I, I wanted to do more. So I actually read an article in the alumni magazine for Princeton University, and uh, it talked about this organization and how the name was changing and about some of the new initiatives, which included this program, which, you, which I said I helped found. But at the time, I, I thought it existed already uh, based on the article. And it sounded great because that's exactly, what I thought, let me use my professional skills to give back to a nonprofit organization in a, you know, completely as a volunteer. I, but I wanted to volunteer with skills. And so I contacted them and it turned out the program hadn't actually gotten off the ground yet. Given some of my startup experience, the executive director was very wise and she said, what Why don't you help us start this? And 10 10 plus years later, I am still very actively involved with the organization. So she was very perceptive about uh, ways to engage volunteers.
0: If I back up a little bit, so you went to Princeton, you find the organization in Princeton. So have you always lived in Princeton or were there some job diversions in there?
1: Yeah, I actually first moved out to the Bay Area right after my undergraduate years. I was in management consulting for a couple of years, and then I um, I went to business school at Stanford, and then after that, I got involved in technology management in Silicon Valley. Like many people who move out to the Bay Area, though, I didn't I didn't join a startup. I joined a company that was already pretty well established, but it was um, the nineties, and there was a lot of growth and opportunity. And I grew with the company and grew into more and more senior roles. and uh, my last role there my second to last role there was general manager of a billion dollar business so it was- pretty big, big responsibility. And then I, I did a little stint as um, more of a staff role working with the CEO and the COO, strategic initiatives and on operational initiatives. And then my husband got an opportunity to teach at Princeton University. He is also a Princeton alum, and that was an offer he couldn't pass up. So uh, so we moved back to Princeton then. Yeah, it was about, we had been about 15 years out in the Bay Area, and we came back to Princeton, and I was there for um, the next 21 years.
0: Yeah. So is that where you find Battelle Ventures? Yeah, sure. So
1: yeah, so I had moved back to Princeton, and I was doing some part-time consulting work. And I met a couple of guys who had a small venture capital fund in Princeton. And I joined them first as a venture partner. And then we had the opportunity to start a new venture capital fund with funding from a company called the Battelle Memorial Institute. It is actually a nonprofit as well. And uh, Battelle manages some of the Department of Energy national laboratories as well as doing its own research. So the idea was to leverage all of that government funded research to create. Uh, startup companies. And so we, uh, there were four of us who became the founding general partners of that venture fund in 2003, 2004. And then we did a lot of very different kinds of things from your typical venture capital fund for the next 10, 15 years. So,
0: is this where you start to get an interest in renewable energy?
1: Yeah. So, so as I mentioned, Battelle Memorial Institute ran or managed a few of the national labs for the Department of Energy. And um, by definition, there was a lot of energy research going on in those labs. There was other kinds of research as well. So we didn't only do renewable energy, but I gravitated to those types of technologies and investments. And I I think I'd always had an interest. I, I didn't necessarily have the technical background, so I definitely found others who helped me evaluate those technologies. We were getting started really at the ground floor, literally walking the hallways at these labs, talking to researchers about technologies that were still very much on the lab bench, and then figuring out which of those could have potential to create companies. Um, and I even ran some of them. So we were so early that we didn't, like, there was no management team. Right. <laughs> so I even started <laughs> as, as a CEO of one of those companies and actually stuck with that for for several years
0: of the things that you looked at back then in the early 2000s, which was, I mean, renewable energy was coming along, but not like it is today. What do you remember that's still around? Or does something stand out like a cool thing you saw that's now kind of more mainline?
1: So, yes, you were right. That was early days, certainly. In fact, the term clean tech had just started or was, you know, just starting to be even recognized as as an area of, of venture capital investing. It was actually a really collegial time for the Uh, venture capital folks who were were working in that space, Um, but then it really just grew tremendously. I invested in a variety of different technologies, solar, batteries, biofuels, energy efficiency, Um, a traffic management company that we sort of argued was also about energy efficiency because it was really about moving traffic more smoothly through traffic lights, which, which does have implications for emissions and for you know, fuel efficiency. So um, there was a lot that fell under that umbrella in terms of what I saw that other people were investing in. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I guess what I have seen of late is that a lot of the tech, I mean, a lot of the technology is still kind of actually older technology, not necessarily some of the really sort of revolutionary breakthrough stuff we tried to get going. And so that's why a lot of the stuff we invested in didn't turn out that just the nature of the beast when you do early stage investing. It also became harder, um, the venture capital community really moved away from those risky technologies, um, a variety of factors, that that was when the current companies that are so successful in Silicon Valley were really getting their start. And so a lot of the VC funding kind of gravitated towards those technologies. The Obama Administration, in particular, was really supportive of of renewable energy, and so there was government funding. But then that sort of dried up as well, unfortunately. so it, and and you really need all of that. I think one of the things I became convinced of is venture capital isn't maybe the best or only way to um to promote these technologies. But um, as to what survives from my work, there were, a couple of the investments we made that then turned into companies and then were acquired by other companies that are still around, in the one in the battery space and one in the traffic management space that I talked about, and that was actually of my work the most successful outcome from a from a sort of financial exit perspective. But we seeded a lot of other stuff that I do still see out there in different forms. So <laughs> maybe we're just a little ahead of my time.
0: Now, did this then spark your passion for? the climate change situation, or had you been thinking about that, knowing about it before that?
1: I think it was in the background of my thinking for quite a while. I'm, I am I read a lot. I try to stay up on, on current events and news. And so I certainly think that the groundswell around the need to solve this huge societal problem around climate change was really building pretty pretty dramatically in that period of time when I was doing these investments. And so I know, in the, and I, I sort of came to realize over time that my passion for these investments was really this passion around trying to make a difference in this climate change huge issue that we have. And that's why I focused on these. My, my thesis was these breakthrough technologies would really kind of significantly move the needle. But I also knew that, you know, a lot of them wouldn't, wouldn't survive to be able to do that, but that it was, you know, was worth trying. And I think I've learned since then there are all sorts of other uh, approaches. And it's a, you know, it's it's a very, you got to look at it really much more comprehensively. But yeah, I I as I learned more about why I was doing the things I was doing, I realized I was really just much more mission driven. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily looking to build wealth through my through my venture capital investing. I was really looking to change the world. I, I know that sounds cliched, but that, that's actually <laughs> what I started to realize was important to me. Literally change the world in this case with climate change. And as I learned that about myself, I realized I really needed to be doing something different. <laughs> and the venture capital wasn't necessarily the way to to fulfill that part of me.
0: Now back to the alumni course, is that when you decided to spend more time doing that? Because eventually you end up leaving the venture capital world and leaving your CEO spot and doing the alumni course full time. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the, the order of events was we wrapped up the Venture Fund in 2015, but I had started back in 2010, 2011, was when I first got involved with Alumni course. So yeah, I, I think part of me saw that writing on the wall, saw that, that need to do something that sort of filled a different part of me. Um, I had the opportunity to join the board. And then, yes, post my venture fund, I applied to be president of the organization, which was just a volunteer role. um, uh, It's a kind of complicated structure. And then in 2017, um, the executive director, which is a paid staff position, the previous executive director um, decided to take a a new exciting position. And that position became vacant. And I decided to jump in with both feet and apply for that job. And uh, so I took the helm as the executive director in the mid-2017 uh, and did that until we we moved to California last summer.
0: What was it like going from being a VC partner and also managing the startup companies to being the executive director of, a, I guess, not-for-profit, right?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Alumni Corps is firmly a not-for-profit. It's different, but the same, I guess is the way I would put it. And part of what my philosophy is about folks who work in the nonprofit sector or volunteer in the nonprofit sector with their skills and experience is that there's a lot that is transferable from any kind of leadership role. Running a nonprofit is still leading and it's still especially what Alumni Corps does, it's all about leadership development, uh, both in terms of the internal staff as well as our program participants. So in my mind, leadership is, is leadership. There are clearly nuances. It's a different type of. It's mission driven. Again, going back to that word, and that does mean you 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 have folks working in nonprofits who are you know as skilled and as amazing as people who work in the business world, but they're they're coming at it from with a different, I guess, mindset and value system. Uh, it's hard work, and it does take all the same kinds of leadership development and support that is more typical in especially sort of larger businesses. I know I got a lot of that when I worked in Silicon Valley, but it's less prevalent. Unfortunately, the funders of nonprofits don't necessarily recognize that. And so people get excited about programs uh, or what nonprofits do in communities and all the impact that they have, but sometimes they forget it's still people who have to implement those programs and envision them and interact with communities and and that that hard work is, yes, it's very personally rewarding, but you also need, <laughs> you need the leadership skills and, and you need to be financially rewarded as well. So it, the challenge I think is that some of those pieces aren't there and you have to create them as a nonprofit leader or find the resources to do that. And that's what makes it different, but people are people at the end of the day. <laughs>
0: You know, I know because this, this podcast is about people in their third act and people thinking about doing something new. I mean, if you had to offer up a piece of advice about that transition from sort of the for-profit world to the nonprofit world, anything come to mind in terms of if you're thinking about becoming an ED? Because I know people are like, you know, I think I'm going to retire and I'm going to go run a not-for-profit. And I'm a board chair of a not-for-profit. And I, I'm i like, it's so different. I'm not sure that that is always the most natural progression. So what, what would your thinking be if you're giving advice on this?
1: Listen, 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 first of all. Really don't come in with any preconceived assumptions. Listen to the people who are the experts and the practitioners on the ground doing that hard work and, you know, come approach it with humility and understand that, yes, there are definitely parallels and ways to tie in your experience. But Take the time to learn and listen and and then figure out how to best, you know, map those skills to the nonprofit. So that would be my my first and, and most and sort of foremost piece of advice. I think the other is to recognize that if you're coming from a sort of bottom line driven type of background or or you know, your prior lives in, in companies, th- that part is is different. So Many nonprofits still today, you know, really start over every year. They need to raise their money from their donors or, or um, from wherever way they, they generate income, but that income is, you know, tied to their mission and tied to their programs. And, and they're not, I mean, they're not profits, they're, they're not meant to have a surplus, but, you know, it's a fine line, right? So, in other words, you know, best case is you sort of, you break even, <laughs> you bring in enough money to, and then you start over every year. Now that model is changing and, and I'm happy to talk about that some more, but to just recognize that that sort of that p and I mean, it, it looks different because this is not for-profit and that those, yeah. And think about how those sources of revenue, you know, those sources of revenue may uh, don't necessarily have anything to do with the program's you're delivering, and that's kind of, you know, figuring out how to best match that. Fundraising is important for every single executive director, uh, becomes a key part of their job. But that's about relationships. I, I think bottom line, it gets back to people and to listening, right? It's about understanding that the way to raise money is to develop relationships and find people who you know, want to support
0: your, your mission. <laughs> uh, yeah. And as you look back on it, what's your proudest moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was so so many different smaller things, but I would say overall, it's just it's the impact we continue to have in the nonprofit community overall. We've built a um, network of our program participants, our volunteers, our donors that really sort of is self-supporting in a way. It feeds on itself. It allows for new opportunities to bring this leadership development to more people, seeing the, the folks we have developed and, and worked with earlier in their careers continue to have impact or grow in their roles. So, you know, just being proud of the, our, our role in, in helping them achieve their goals and ambitions in life. I would say, yeah, there isn't any one particular thing. It's really just continuing to build that momentum. I would say developing my my own staff when I was executive director. There's a lot of turnover in the nonprofit sector. It just, it comes from all the things I talked about earlier. And so I am proud that we actually have a fairly stable team, which which I helped to grow. Some of those folks were hired by my predecessor, so I, I can't take all the credit, but to really see them grow in their roles. The person who took over from me as executive director when I left last summer has been now in the organization for seven, going on eight years, and has been promoted into that now executive director role. And I like seeing that we were able to promote from within. So in a way, we were, you know, we we were drinking our own Kool-Aid, right? We it's about developing our own staff and giving them the opportunities to blossom in their career. So I'm, I'm proud to have left that as well. So those are some of the things that I would point to.
0: As I mentioned at the beginning, I love the fact that the ARC Innovators Program takes people who want to give back their time, talent, and treasure to do good better somewhere else. Now, this is for Princeton alums. So all of you who are listening are Princeton alums, you can find it. But are there other programs, either through universities or other places that you're aware of that are similar that people could get involved in? Technically, you don't need to be a Princeton alum to participate
1: in our ARC Innovators Program, and I I should have made that clear, but I do need to admit that at the moment that program is a little bit of hiatus as we try to sort of figure out how to emerge from COVID and and do that in a way that's, that's impactful we have continued to run our other programs, but that one was a little bit more of a challenge for us. But I do know of some other groups that that do similar work. One that I have participated in myself, the Stanford Graduate School of Business. So you do need to be an alum of the business school at Stanford to participate in this. um uh, has a program that's called, that the acronym is ACT, uh, Alumni Consulting Teams. So one key difference is Stanford does their pro bono work in teams, whereas for Alumni Corps, that was uh, it's sort of more even more challenging for us to, to think about that. So we would just do individuals, primarily as match individuals with projects, ACT brings together teams. It's just remarkable. It's been around also for about 30, more than 30 years. And um, so that is an opportunity. Um, there's an organization called Encore, uh, Encore.org, which is really about, I, I think, more focused on paid opportunities for that third act. Um, But I, I, you know, I know that that's a, that's a model.
0: I think a lot of people, as I've said, they just don't want to play golf or, you know, sit around and pursue hobbies all the time. They still want to give back. Now, I want to go back to climate change. Yep. So that's running with you. So how's that manifested in sort of your philanthropic work? And what are you doing with that?
1: Yeah. So actually, back in that same time frame when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do post the venture capital world and starting to understand that venture capital may not be the best way to promote some of my passions around climate change, I got interested in philanthropy as that vehicle. And I was introduced to an organization called Rachel's Network, which is a group of women who are uh, environmental philanthropists, environmental advocates, is really about promoting women's leadership in the environmental space, but clearly with a philanthropic lens. It's um, named after Rachel Carson. Um, it was founded a little over 20 years ago, so long after Rachel Carson had passed away, but really kind of in her memory and in her honor. uh, So Rachel Carson was a a scientist and an activist in the 60s who really shed a light on environmental pollution, especially around, um, she wrote a very famous book called Silent Spring, where she started to recognize that birds were disappearing, hence silence in the spring, and why that was happening. And it was about, you know, chemical pollution so it's it's it is a nonprofit and it's really about educating uh, women philanthropists to help better inform their philanthropy around environmental causes and really about promoting women's leadership in the environmental space. So this that is really cool. Yeah, so this includes advocating to get more women on environmental organization boards, which when the organization was founded 20 years ago was not so much a thing. and i'm I'm happy to say if you look at larger environmental organizations, many of them are now run by women and do have um, more women on their boards, many of whom are Rachel's Network members. The other piece that we've really leaned into in the last several years is around raising up the voices of women of color in environmental organizations. Um, There have been many women of color working in environmental causes and communities that have not been recognized nationally. There are many grassroots organizations. This whole field really now of environmental justice is something women of color have known for a very long time. And unfortunately, those of us with, with more privilege have been slower to recognize those needs. Um, philanthropy still very much is focused on white-led organizations. Um, and so we decided to really look at that much more closely and um, aw- make an award to those women
0: My listeners, I think a lot of them might be interested in, if they wanted to get to know or have a better understanding of what some good places to be around uh, environmental social justice, where would they look? Well, they can certainly look
1: at Rachel's network. We started um, something called the Catalyst Award two years ago. Um, We now have uh, a number of Catalyst Award winners as well as finalists who are all featured on our website. And that's a great way to start to look at some of what's going on, unfortunately, tip of the iceberg, but some of what's going on there. We spend a lot of time sort of vetting and and understanding those organizations and the ones we want to support, but there's so many more. <laughs> um, so that would be one place to start to understand um, the, this whole field and, and the work that's going on in it. I continue to learn so much every day <laughs> uh, about the work that's that's going on there and about how it really can we actually can't solve the climate change problem unless we recognize the needs of, of communities that have really been overlooked and unfortunately where much of the harm has been and will come. Yeah. And so really understanding that and bringing those voices to the table to, is absolutely necessary to um, make the kinds of changes we need to make.
0: You know, I looked at Rachel's Network. It's just such an incredible organization to think about women who have money and women who are leaders coming together for environmental causes and then, you know, having a group that does advocacy and does education around it, right? And so, as I said, we've got, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners interested in, we'll publish all the information in our show notes if people are listening and are interested. You mentioned that you've now moved to San Francisco, back to San Francisco recently, and you've moved off of your ARC position. So what are you doing now and where are you headed aside from working with Rachel's network?
1: So I actually continue to be active with Alumni Corps as well. I went back to that president's president role which is a volunteer role and continue to be on the board um, we are working on a strategic plan we um, we have a, a lot going on so i'm really excited about that so one thing i didn't mention is i joined Rachel's network but then i joined the board uh, this this happens i <laughs> i get involved and i, I jump in I with saying, this both happens the, this keeps happening to me um <laughs> so no i mean i i i am i just i don't i'm not a passive participant so i just get involved I was asked to join the board of Rachel's Network back in 2015. Um, and then I actually became vice chair and then um, a board chair in 2017. Um, and I continue in that role. So that's a very active role there. I'm not on the staff, but I work very closely with the staff on that. And especially all these initiatives around environmental justice that I have mentioned. I um, have done a couple of projects for the Stanford GSB Act program. So that was my way of starting to learn about the nonprofit Community in San Francisco in particular, and ways that I can get involved. I am still—I really am more focused on environmental issues in the Bay Area, of which there are also many opportunities. And so I am—I'm still learning. I really decided to take a step. I'm—I'm very busy actually with the Alumni Corps work and the Rachel's Network work and the Act work. But step back and understand where I can be most impactful from a, from a nonprofit perspective. So definitely wanna stay in the nonprofit community um, and we'll see, I'm not exactly sure where that may end up, but my other opportunities have come up sort of learning and educating myself and then you know being in the right place at the right time for something that's serendipitously <laughs> It um, uh, gets me gets me excited. Um, And I'm also I would say I've got a lot of family commitments now that I'm so happy to be able to now that I'm fully vaccinated, spend time with family. And I have some life life events that are going to happen in the next year or so that are going to take some some of my time. So I'm, I'm trying to leave my, you know, leave time for that as well. So
0: I'm keeping busy. I almost thought to name this podcast I'm not done yet, because I feel like I'm not done yet. I, I can't even imagine what you're gonna say, but what aren't you done with yet? Oh, so much. Um so <laughs> okay. And, name two and there's things. so I mean, much to
1: be, yeah. So climate change. Right? I mean, I will just start with that. There is still so much to do. Um, there is just it's it's unfortunately, you know, there hasn't been enough done. And and then for me, I just feel like there are so many needs and so many opportunities for impact that it's just about figuring out what's the next one. I won't even say the best because there are so many, uh, but just taking it one step at a time and where's the next place I can really leverage my talents and experience to make a difference.
0: Well, that's great. Well, Kev, thank you so much for joining me on Third Act. We will publish in the show notes all of the references you've had to uh, to the different ways you can get involved, like at the Stanford ACT program or Alumni Corp or Encore, as well as Rachel's network. Where else can people find you online? You're a little elusive, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, I am not. I'm not really, I don't have much of an online presence, to be honest. I guess I'm sort of old school. Um, yeah. I, my LinkedIn profile's a bit out of date, but maybe I can work <laughs> on making sure that that gets updated before this goes live. But yeah, they we'll can publish reach me that. through LinkedIn and and or through any of these organizations because they can always, they know where to find me. So I, I would say that would be, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I've had a lot of, so what happens is, especially if people who are listening are interested in what others are doing, they'll, you might get some reach outs, which I've had people do. So I wanted to make sure we've got that. So thanks again and, and uh, look forward to hearing more about your fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh act. <laughs> thanks a lot, Liz. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.